Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. We embark today on a brand new series called The Fullness of Life. And can I just tell you how excited I am for this new series because I need this series. I need this series. I personally have so much growing to do in the area of living a full and abundant life. You can just ask my wife about that. She'll tell you. And maybe you do too. Maybe I'm not the only one who has some growing to do on what it is to live a full or abundant life in Christ. But the good news for us today is that we're in good company. Because even the Apostle Paul, he said this of himself in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So even the Apostle Paul would readily admit and confess to you as I am today, he didn't have a complete handle on this whole thing called fullness of life or life abundant. And so we're in good company, and as we get started, um, let me introduce someone to you. First of all, this is Hank the Happy Heathen. All right? And as his name implies, Hank doesn't know Jesus. In fact, he would probably describe himself as an agnostic. He's not really sure even if there is a God. But by the world's standards, man, Hank's a really good guy. He's known for his smile, his positive attitude in the workplace. He, he volunteers on the weekends as a big brother. And he's even adopted several dogs from the local animal shelter. And so um, he's a really good guy, and people love to be around Hank. But all is not roses with him. You see, Hank has this nagging sense that something important is missing from his life. And his volunteerism, you know, from the outside, it all looks really good, but it's really just an effort to fill that void that he knows is within him that he can't quite put his finger on. And when it doesn't work, filling the void, Hank admits that he drinks more than he should. Now, in the same workplace is a man named Chris. <laughs> this is Chris the Cranky Christian. Now, I didn't say Christy the Cranky Christian, all right? So just, I just want to make sure we're clear on that, all right? Um... Chris prayed the sinner's prayer when he was 15 at a youth camp. And since then, Chris has been a regular church attender. But Well, let's be honest. He's semi-regular. He attends when he doesn't have something else going on. And Chris is best known in his workplace for his politics, which he trumpets through his social media rants. And everyone knows what Chris is against, but very few know what Chris is for. 
No one asks for the reason for the hope that is within him because there's no evidence of such hope. And in general, people in the office, they they keep a healthy distance from Chris because he's just a big downer. Conversations with Chris inevitably take a negative turn. He's known as Chris, the cranky Christian. Now, if we were to put these two in a lineup and ask their coworkers, the coworkers of Hank and Chris, which of these two is living a full and abundant life, who's going to get picked? Sadly, sadly, Hank, the happy heathen, the one who is not a professing Christian, and as we can all agree, my brothers and sisters, this should never, ever, ever be. Yet I fear that it's all too common. The world knows far too many of us as cranky Christians. And in contrast, Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verse 10, the theme verse of the series. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The ESV calls it life abundant. It comes from the Greek parasos, which means over and above, more than is necessary. It means superior, extraordinary, surpassing, and uncommon. It's the kind of life that you would expect from someone who literally has God Almighty dwelling within them. A victorious, overcoming, fruitful kind of life. The the life that stands out for the right reasons and captures the attention of a watching world. Now, let's be clear, the watching world may not agree with that life, and the watching world may actually end up hating that life, but at least they're hating it for the right reasons. And if you think that such a life is only for a select few, some some different category of super-Christian, you'd be greatly mistaken. For the truth of the matter is that fullness, abundance, It is the normal Christian life. It is the normal Christian life. And anything less than this is actually abnormal. It is sub-Christian. See, Chad, how how do you know that to be true? Two reasons. They're both uh, um, scripturally based and theological in nature. Number one, Jesus proclaimed this reality for all believers. Right? Let's go back to our theme verse, John 10.10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Who's they? Who's it talking about? It's talking about all believers and not just a select few. Again, telling us that fullness or abundance is the normal Christian life. The second reason I know this to be true is that the Holy Spirit, God himself, indwells all believers. Everybody say all. All. That about covers it, doesn't it? All believers. And as we will see in the weeks to come, that truth is the key that unlocks the door to abundance, to fullness, to fruitfulness. And so in light of this key, We'll study the following key topics. We're going to be looking at abiding in Christ. That's next week, John 15. The fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the community of the Spirit, and the warfare of the Spirit. And that's going to take us quite some time. We're going to be several months in the making um, of this sermon series. And some of you might say, Chad, this sounds pretty topical in nature. Aren't you one who is committed to expositional preaching? After all, we just spent a year in the book of Revelation. And for those of you who may be unfamiliar with those terms, let's talk about them just for a moment. Topical preaching 
begins with a topic, duh, and it's um, scripture passages are chosen to explain the topic, all right? In contrast, expositional preaching begins with a text, and scripture passages are explained and then applied to a topic. And so both are valid forms of preaching, but as you know, I tend to lean more toward expositional preaching for several reasons. Number one, I think there's a safety in expositional preaching. Expositional preaching allows the text to set the agenda rather than the preacher. So I can't just pick a verse and then go off on whatever tangent I want to and just say whatever I want to about it. So there's a safety in expositional preaching. The second reason that I tend to lean in this direction is training. As we engage a text together, it models for us all how to interpret Scripture correctly so that you all can become self-feeders and not just dependent upon a preacher to tell you what it means. And so that's uh, another very important reason for expositional preaching, the training element. So in answer to the question, is this series topical or is it expositional? The answer is yes. And what I mean by that is we will take this topic of the fullness of life and the key topics I mentioned, but we will preach it expositionally, meaning that we're going to take key passages and draw meaning from their larger context, rather than take verses out of context and then again make them say what we want them to say. For example, uh, today's key passage on the fullness of life is John 10.10, but we won't take verse 10 out of its larger context and then kind of go wherever we want to with it. We will take John 10.10 in the larger context of John 10.1 through 21 and draw meaning from that larger text, and that's the way we'll approach all of these key topics in the series. So again, I believe that as we progress through the series, it will help us to stay on track and to not read into the text things that are not there. And so when you have questions, it won't be just based upon what I think, it will be based upon what we encountered in the Scripture together. So let's dive into John 10, 1 through 21, where we find today a blueprint for abundant, the abundant life. The blueprint for an abundant life. What's a blueprint? Yeah, the blueprints are drawings or plans that give instructions for how to build something. And if you want to have an abundant life, you must follow this blueprint. You must build according to the plans given in Scripture, the, the plans given in our text today. Um, the setting is Jesus confronting Judaism's religious leaders who are described as being false shepherds. All right, that's very important to know as we move into chapter 10. Jesus is contrasting himself with Ju the Judea re Jewish religious leaders who are called false shepherds. So, would you please stand with me as I read today's text, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21, the blueprint for an abundant life. Amen. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To, to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice." A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. 
So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this new beginning today. We thank you for this series, and I pray that it would be revolutionary in my own life personally, in the life of this congregation. God, that you would teach us what it means to live a full and abundant life. And for those of us who are abnormal, God, would you make us normal? Would you make us normal? Teach us all that you have in store for us, and may we settle for nothing less. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So today's passage, it teaches us the blueprint for an abundant life. And the first instruction given in that blueprint is to be a sheep. Be a sheep, which admittedly is a kind of an odd place to start. If we were to pick an animal representing fullness of life or abundance, I don't think I would pick a sheep. I'd pick a a lion, maybe an eagle, maybe a pug. (laughs) But uh, a sheep would definitely be far down my list of animals that represent abundance. But the fact of the matter is that this whole passage uses the word picture of sheep to describe us and how we are to relate to the shepherd and experience abundance. And so we see this consistently throughout Scripture, don't we? I mean, consider Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of his pasture. How does Psalm 23 begin? The Lord is my shepherd, which again puts us in the category of sheep. So what does that mean exactly, that we are sheep? Well, as many of you know, it's not very flattering. It's actually kind of humiliating. Um, The truth of the matter is sheep are dumb. No other way to put it, right? They're just not very bright. They're completely unable to care for themselves, which is illustrated by the fact that they are directionless, meaning that if they get lost, they're unable to find their way back home. Some shepherd has to go looking for them and find them and give them the way to get home. Further, they're defenseless. Think about a sheep for a moment. 
Um, they don't have big teeth. They don't have sharp claws or any way, any means of fending off an attacker. Left to themselves, sheep are easy prey for predators. So to sum it all up, sheep are completely dependent. Sheep are completely dependent. They, they can't care for themselves. They can't guide themselves. They can't defend themselves. And wouldn't you know it, the Bible says that we're sheep. Not exactly the place we would expect to start and a blueprint for abundance. Rather, we might uh, think we'd begin with some inspirational self-help talk from somebody like this, uh, Tony Robbins, about being the best version of yourself, something that might get you all fired up, encouraging you to be all that you can be because greatness is within you. But the reality is we're sheep. And at the end of the day, the best version of a sheep is what? A sheep still a sheep. And until we embrace this identity fully, we're going to be frustrated with our pursuit of a full and abundant life, constantly falling short, constantly disappointed. We're not going to experience the kind of life that God intends for each and every one of us. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He said, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit.'" for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit means to fully embrace your sheepness, to recognize that you are spiritually bankrupt, unable to save yourself, and completely dependent upon God the way a sheep is dependent upon a shepherd. And until we reach this point, as long as you think there's some greatness that's just inherent within you that just has to be unlocked so that you can be all that you can be, the best version of yourself you're going to miss out on the abundant life. You're simply seeking to become the best version of a sheep, falling short of the abundance that God intends for his children in the normal Christian life. So here's the principle. There is no abundance without dependence. There is no abundance without dependence. So step one in our blueprint for abundance is simply be a sheep. Be a sheep. The second step, number two, walk through the door. Walk through the door. Look at verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. This is such a beautiful image from the ancient world uh, where it was the practice of shepherds to spend long, long days with the sheep out in the fields. And at night, the shepherds would gather the sheep into a fold or a pen to protect them from thieves, from bad weather, and from wild animals. And this sheepfold or pen could take one of several forms. It, it could be a cave, kind of like what we see in this picture right here. It could be a, a, a crude shed, or it, even simply something that the shepherd would construct out of stones or branches. What, whatever form the pen would take, it would have one opening, and one opening only making it easier for the shepherd to guard the flock. And in that opening, the shepherd himself would serve as the door for the gate. He would literally lay down in front of it. 
Nobody went into the pen without going through the shepherd, and no sheep left the pen without going through the shepherd, for the shepherd himself was literally the door, the gate for the pen. In the same way, here in this passage, Jesus says, I'm the door. He identifies himself as the door, and this has tremendous implications for us in a blueprint for abundance. First and foremost, Jesus is the gate, the door to heaven, to the kingdom of God. We talked a lot about pearly gates toward the end of Revelation, didn't we? Pearly gates. Well, there are no pearly gates without first Jesus, the gate. There is no abundance without walking through Jesus, the door. He is the gateway to fullness. Listen to John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's door language, isn't it? Through me. We can only enter the kingdom and its abundance through Jesus. We must walk through that door. But what does that practically mean? Let's let's not just assume that we know what is involved with walking through Jesus, the door. First, it means to confess, recognizing that you are lost, that you are sinful, you are helpless, and in your present state, you deserve the wrath and judgment of God. Isaiah 53, 6 says it this way, all we like what? Sheep have gone, what? Astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So we must confess that this is us. Next, to walk through the door means to repent. To repent, to turn away from this condition. To turn away from our sin and to turn to Jesus alone for forgiveness. Exchanging our old life, our old prideful life of rebellion for a new life of humble obedience. There is a great contrast between the old and the new. That is repentance. That's often the missing element in the life of Christians. We're good at confession, not so much at repentance. Ultimately, confession, repentance, they are done through trust. This is what it means. We trust that the shepherd will keep every one of his promises, that he will do exactly what he said he will do, leading those who walk through the door into fullness of life. Just as Jesus says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And here's the beautiful thing about Jesus being the door. You see, doors have multiple functions, don't they? They are points, points of entry, but they're also points of protection. And so another role that Jesus fulfills in our lives is Jesus will protect and keep his sheep. He will protect and keep his sheep. John six thirty nine, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. In John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why? Because Jesus is the gate. He's the door. He's the entry way to life abundant, but he also brings protection to his children. And no one, not even the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour can get through the shepherd which is great news. We are secure with Jesus as the gate. Now, that being said, 
I am concerned about Chris, the cranky Christian who we met earlier. I don't know Chris's heart, but I am concerned that whatever happened when he was 15 at a youth camp was not truly entering through the door. Perhaps it was more of something that was an emotional experience or it was eternal fire insurance uh, rather than an exchanged life. Jesus says, by their fruit you will know them. And so perhaps the place for Chris to begin in pursuing a full and abundant life is to go back to the first step of the blueprint. To be a sheep, to embrace his sinfulness, his helplessness, and his dependence, and then to enter through the door, confessing, repenting, trusting. Maybe some of you are Chris today. If you find yourself in a situation where, you know, hey, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid or something happened back there, but really there's no fruit in my life today, why take that chance? Why make assumptions? Why not do business with God right here, right now, confessing, repenting, trusting, entering through Jesus the gate? If so, today can be the day that you walk through that door and begin experiencing the normal Christian life, a life of fullness and abundance. For the principle is this, there is no abundance without entrance. There is no abundance without entrance through Jesus the door. So far in our blueprint for abundance, we've encountered two steps. Number one, embrace what it is to be a sheep. Number two, walk through the door. Number three is follow the shepherd. Now here, Jesus changes the word picture, doesn't he? And the setting from what we might call a rural sheep pen with shepherds who were far from home, out in a field, now we're changing the setting to more of an urban or a fixed sheep pen. And while the rural sheep pen was made out of rocks or brush or whatever a shepherd could find, an urban sheep pen is a fixed structure. And what would happen is that when shepherds were close to home and they had their sheep, um, they would team up. And they would share a sheep pen or a sheep pole. They would, and they would, they would put all their sheep in there together. It was good stewardship, and it also provided some safety in numbers. And so in light of that setting, Jesus says in verse 1, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheep fold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The principle that Jesus wants to teach us about himself in these verses is, first of all, the good shepherd enters the sheepfold through the door. He does it right because he is the one who belongs and one who legitimately enters through the door. Um, in contrast to the thieves and robbers who were not the legitimate shepherds, and so they would enter by other means. And so Jesus entering by the door, we might say this is by the book by the book, and meaning the scriptures, which prophesied about him and gave him legitimacy. You see, Jesus came in fulfillment of these scriptures, demonstrating that he was, in fact, the legitimate shepherd of the sheep. He was the Messiah who enters the door of the sheepfold. Only he is qualified as such. And in the text, it says that there is a gatekeeper who recognizes this about Jesus. And so this gatekeeper opened the door to the sheepfold, for Jesus. Now, who's the gatekeeper in our analogy here? It's interesting. There's some thought that it's a reference to John the Baptist, which I think works. 
John the Baptist, who was given a temporary role as a gatekeeper and caretaker of the sheep until the good shepherd came on the scene, and at which point John recognized Jesus as that legitimate good shepherd who fulfilled all the prophecies, and he handed the sheep pen and the sheep over to Jesus. But the point of all this is that Jesus alone is the legitimate Messiah because he alone fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies, making him authentic and ultimately trustworthy. This is in contrast, and again, in context, to all the false shepherds that were um, plaguing Judaism at the time who did not enter by the door as Jesus did. They were not to be trusted. And so the good shepherd, he enters by the door. Secondly, the, the good shepherd knows the sheep intimately, and they know him. And this is perhaps my favorite part of the sermon. If you look at the second part of verse 3, it says, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Here's what I love about this so much. I mentioned earlier that in those urban sheep pens, it was the the practice of um, multiple shepherds to put all their sheep in this one pen together for the night. But do you wonder, it's like, well, how do they figure out the next day which sheep goes with which shepherd? And you might think, well, maybe they brand them somehow, and actually that's not the way that they did it. Here's the thing. All that a shepherd had to do was to call. And his own sheep would come because they know his voice, and they will not follow the voice of another shepherd. Now, how did the the sheep develop, or the shepherd for that matter, this special skill or sense? Well, they simply developed a tight-knit relationship. Think about how much time the shepherd and the sheep spent together. I mean, they're out in the field hour after hour, day after day, and because sheep were largely raised for their wool and not for their meat, even year after year they spent together. And during all this time, um, the shepherd did more than just watch the sheep like a babysitter. He, he cared for them. He fed them. He fought for them. He healed them. It was even common for the shepherd to give each of them names, relating to them individually and personally. So the point is that a special, intimate relationship was developed between the shepherd and and the sheep. Well, how, how intimate? Well, we've already seen the example of, of them recognizing the voice, but listen to what Jesus described in verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Now, watch this, though, because I, I think I glossed right over this the first time. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Now, does that make your head want to explode when you really think about what it's saying? How well do the Father and the Son know each other? Pretty well, right? They live in a tri-unity, one in essence, three in persons. You can't know or be known any more than that. And yet, this is how Jesus describes the kind of intimacy he intends to have with us, his sheep. He wants us to know him just as the Father knew him, and he knows the Father. In fact, he prayed for this in John 17, verse 21. He's praying for us. He's praying for our unity, and then our unity with the Trinity. He says that they may all be one, 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It is that kind of intimacy with God and with one another that demonstrates to a watching world that Jesus is alive. Oneness with one another and with the shepherd, the way that Jesus and the Father are one. The good shepherd knows the sheep intimately, and they know him. Next, the text teaches that the good shepherd leads the sheep to abundance. Look at the second half of verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Could anything be more music to the ears of a sheep than pasture? What does a sheep find in pasture? They find everything that they need to live. They find food, like the grass they need to be nourished. They find drink, the water that they need to quench their thirst. They find rest, the shade that they need to take a break from their labor. As it says in Psalm 23, verse 2, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And I'm starting to think it's not such a bad deal to be a sheep, right? The point is that the good shepherd leads the sheep to abundance. He knows the way because he is the way. And verse 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it with mediocrity. To have it abundantly. There's our theme verse in context. And again, we'll spend the next months deliberately unpacking the implications of this, what it is to live a full life, of an abundant life. And for now, it's enough to know that the good shepherd, he leads the sheep to pasture, to fullness, to abundance. It is the normal experience of the sheep. Next, the text teaches that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Look at verse 11. It says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Now skip ahead a few verses to verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It's no mystery that the life of a shepherd is a dangerous one. Wild animals were common in the Judean countryside. Um, bandits, thieves were common, wanting to steal your livestock. I think of the words of David in the Old Testament. He's saying this to King Saul on the eve of um, facing Goliath. He says, um, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. A truly good shepherd cares for the sheep to the point of laying down his life for them. 
And this was not the case with the false shepherds, the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders of the day. Jesus is contrasting himself with them. You you see, um, rather than fight for the sheep, these false shepherds would exploit the sheep. They would use them for their own gain. But in contrast, Jesus, the good shepherd, he laid down his life for the sheep when he died on the cross. In fact, and this is such that the twist, the twist of the story, the good shepherd became the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. The good shepherd became the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And so when you put this all together, the good shepherd enters the sheepfold through the gate because he is the legitimate Messiah who fulfills the Scriptures. He knows the sheep intimately, and they know him. He leads the sheep to abundance, to pasture, and he lays down his life for the sheep because he himself is the Lamb of God. And church, if we would experience fullness of life, then we must follow the shepherd wherever he leads, meaning that there is no abundance without obedience. There is no abundance without obedience. We are not free to make up our own rules and to do it our way. That old Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way, right? It's not not, going to lead you to abundance. We will only experience abundance God's way. So in today's text, we have this initial blueprint for an abundant life that we're going to build upon. First and foremost, we have to recognize that we are sheep. Secondly, we have to walk through the door, the only door that leads to abundance. And then in doing so, we must follow the shepherd. All of which reminds us again that fullness and abundance is the normal Christian life. And I pray that in the months to come, we will together be more and more normal, right? Experiencing all the fullness and all the abundance that God intends for all his children. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would do a fresh, deep, cleansing, powerful work by the power of your Holy Spirit in each one of our lives. God, if we are living below abundance, which, again, like the Apostle Paul said, we we haven't gotten there yet. There isn't a single one of us that has arrived. There isn't a single one of us who can't grow in this area. God, would you, through this time that we spend together on a weekly basis, would you just do something new and fresh that we might become all that you would intend for us to be? We confess to you the times that we have been Chris the Cranky Christian. And that we have portrayed Jesus in ways that are not consistent with who he is. God, may the world see Jesus in us because your spirit dwells within us. And God, we acknowledge that we will be hated by the world. But again, God, may we be hated for the right reasons. And there will be others, Father, who are absolutely drawn to that life of abundance because your spirit is drawing them. And God, we pray for a great harvest of lost souls. God, would you convince us this morning that there is no evangelism without us living lives of abundance. 
for we would be false advertising. So God, would you do the work in us that you might work through us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.